0: Welcome to Our Journey.
1: Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we, the people, celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome once again to a more perfect union. I am Peter Jay. With me, the usual suspects, Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Natalie Alinos and Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Nice to see you all once again via Zoom. And today we are going to talk about infrastructure. We're going to break this up into a couple of discussions. This morning's discussion is going to focus on the larger infrastructure bill, the family size bill. Uh, And that particular bill is obviously the one that is the most contentious where we haven't yet found agreement even within the democratic party <clears throat> let alone between parties that said i think it's a, i think it's possible to put it under the microscope and to start taking a closer look at what it all means and you know the word has been said by the media that what we're doing is coming up with a bill that supposedly everyone seems to be in favor of among the American public. I think for me, the larger question is, if so, when do they fall out of favor with it? That is, when do they get to a point where they say, "Mm, I can't afford that. And so we've got on one side, Senators Manchin and Sinema uh, taking the more conservative approach or as they would tell you the more mainstream approach on the other side the people carrying the flag are obviously AOC Bernie Sanders and we want to know where we end up what is not enough what is too much and to parse it even more finely you know the 3.5 trillion dollar proposal has a number of things in it there's one 135 billion for agriculture $332 billion for the banking committee, $198 billion for energy and natural resources, $67 billion for the environment and public works. Then there's another $1.8 trillion for the finance committee, $726 billion for health, labor, education, and pensions, $37 billion for the HSGAC committee, which is about re-electrifying rehab, uh, federal buildings improving cybersecurity, and so on. 107 billion for the Judiciary Committee, 20 billion for Indian Affairs, 25 billion for the Small Business Committee, 18 billion for Veterans Affairs, 83 billion for Commerce, and so on and so on. Now, this is all supposedly over 10 years. So let's keep that in mind. But again, returning to the question on the table, Among all of these different pie slices within the bill, which survive, which don't survive, do they all survive with just a smaller piece of pie? And I think that's something we can kick around. That said, we can open the floor to that. Here's a question Do any of these items that I've mentioned fall into an area where if you had less funding for them, they would not be worth doing? In other words, if we cut the funding for a given aspect of the larger bill by 50%, do we get 50% of the value or maybe 60% of the value? Or do we get none of the value or something less? In other words, the cause and effect, the amount of funding and the benefit may not necessarily be linear for some of these things. And of course that's an argument that the proponents of each item are
2: going to make, try to reinforce their case. I'll jump right in. And I'll tell you, one of the other aspects of this, let me throw this out for the group sure, that we don't talk about is that the $3.5 trillion is funded. That's the one aspect uh, that I think we keep missing. Uh, there is a series of uh, tax increases on corporations. We're going to take the tax, uh, the corporate tax rate, which is now 21.5% and raise it to 26.5%, which is actually when they were debating the lowering of the tax rate from the 31, uh, 32% that it was previously under the Trump administration, businesses agreed that the 26% rate was fine. So we're actually just going back to something that had been compromised uh, previously. The other uh, aspect in terms of funding uh, is the tax rate increase on those earning over four hundred thousand dollars per year. And then there's also, I think, uh, a piece on the billionaire's tax that if you earn over a million dollars, that there's a increase in the rate of everything past the million dollars so that everyone pays their fair share, because there are a number of billionaires now who, in essence, are able to avoid legally paying any taxes at all because of the structure of our system. So let me throw that out there as well. And that's an aspect I think that many of our folks uh, in this country miss, but the bill is still popular. So I will agree, uh, Pete, that there is something for us to really consider here which is if we cut something are we then at that point lowering the tax rate that goes along with the pre, uh, with the uh, with the concurrent funding uh, of that bill as well so are we going to shift those funds or are we just going to leave it sitting on the table so in other words the democrats in my mind are negotiating against themselves they've made this more of a discussion and an argument than what it should be and uh, I'd like to hear some of the reactions from my colleagues here. I want to just jump
3: in and, and talk, first of all, to Pete's question, are we getting less? Compromise is not a bad word. And unfortunately, it's not, that sentiment is not universally shared in the context of this, uh, of this particular uh, package. Getting zero would be devastating getting nothing would really push our economy back. So I'm a big fan of get what you can. What you have is a, is a party that's trying to destroy everything that President Biden is proposing. They do not want to give him a win, whatever the cost. And that's a sad state of affairs for the country. But we do have two senators who are key in this particular uh, discussion that have indicated that if there is compromise, they will move forward and get this package over the goal line. And I think, you know as much as I hate to not get all 3.5 trillion, I think you have to be realistic and say, you need to get something to get our economy back rolling. Now, uh, just before the show, I had to give uh, some opening remarks at, a, uh, at an offshore wind conference that's taking place uh, in Boston. And one of the comments that I made is uh, talking about a study that has just been updated, was just released a couple days ago, in fact, on, on Tuesday, that indicated that the offshore wind industry alone is prepared to deliver $109 billion in economic relief for uh, the United States of America. But in order to get that $109 billion, we need to make some significant investments in our infrastructure, in our workforce training. And part of the package that's proposed by President Biden Biden puts us in place to get those much needed items in place. And so you, you take a small portion of that $3.5 trillion, you invest it in the areas required for clean energy and offshore wind, and you're going to see a return of $109 billion. Those are steps that we need to take. And for us to get zero, we put something like that in jeopardy. So there's a political question here. There's a compromise question here. And there's a future needs for the United States question here. And I, for one, will take what we can get in order to move forward. There's nothing preventing us from doing another package in a year or two to supplement. Uh, If we can get $2 trillion now, we could do another package in a year or two to supplement that. But we've got to get moving and get this
1: uh, process started. You bring up an interesting point, uh, Jeff, in that programs such as these, historically, things like Social Security, which is, of course, arguably self-funded, and other programs that sort of point the way, uh, and of course, most recently, uh, our healthcare system, once these programs are in place, they're really, really hard to take away. Now, consider that if this infrastructure bill puts certain programs in place that support families and whatnot, then those benefits have a certain durability by their very existence, and thus finding a way to perhaps a smaller bill that at least puts the programs in place, then gets to the point you raised. There's always the option for supplemental funding when a program starts to develop a history of good works and good results. So if that turns out to be true, uh, it would argue for compromise getting certain aspects of this bill through at any cost uh, just to establish the beachhead. Now to Dr. Mike's point, it's interesting to look at the fact that it's self-funded. One other thing that Dr. Mike did not raise is that there is an international discussion with respect to businesses and tax havens and the fact that businesses above a certain size would actually have something equivalent to an alt-min tax. In other words, they couldn't get off tax-free. They couldn't find a tax haven among the 120 plus countries that are currently supposedly signed onto the bill. We still have to get that one through Congress. But if we do that, it's going to raise revenue among the corporations who are no longer highly incented to try to go offshore.
0: So let me jump in and offer a counter argument. I think, you know, I agree with with Jeff in something is better than nothing, but there are costs. And, you know, Pete, you asked, you know, what if we just lower it? Or let's learn, let's go slow. But that's what we have always been doing. And this is where we are. We're in a planet where climate change is an existential threat for our generation and our kids' generation. We are facing Mass economic impact: women leaving the workforce who are not able to return because they don't have childcare. We have to think about this COVID crisis as an opportunity to rewrite the rules and to rethink that these investments are not incremental. Let's check them out. People are gonna, you know, over- take advantage of the system. We have a broken system. We have left families fall behind in ways that are unacceptable. We're one of the richest countries in the world and we have real poverty. We have real challenges today. We have an education challenge and our climate kind of crisis is there. So I actually think that yes, something is better than nothing, but actually this opportunity, this real you know tragedy that we are emerging from is a chance to say, let's invest in our families. And it does not make sense to me not to have you know universal pre-K for three and four year olds. We know that works in so many parts of the world. It does not make sense to not invest in green, a green future because, and let me get a little bit theoretical here and academic, there's what we know are sort of feedback loops. You know, once you have a warming climate, it gets harder to break the pattern. So it's actually a small investment today. Is actually much worse because it's just gonna, you know, the the climate just feedback. Similarly, with education, if you don't invest in the next generation or you let the women who have left the workforce not return, it's not a one off, it's not just that person. You have a feedback impact on their kids, their grandkids. Like that's just how intergenerational wealth kind of gets ruined. And so I do think we need to think about those feedbacks and move from a vicious cycle of falling deeper into poverty, deeper into sort of this climate challenge to a virtuous cycle. Let's invest big right now to reap the benefits quickly. And and yes, it's it requires politicians who are brave and politicians who are uh, willing to step up, but the public wants it. And I, I don't believe we will ever want to turn back and say, actually, let's not give our kids uh, you know, a chance at an education from three or four. So I, I am with those who are saying we need to continue pushing because the public wants it, and we are not on a good trajectory.
3: Unfortunately, we are missing those brave people that we need, particularly in the Senate. You've got a 50-50 split. And you've got two senators who have indicated quite clearly that they're not going to move unless there's compromise. So we're stuck. And uh, But I agree with you wholeheartedly, Natalia, on spending. And I know we spent a great deal of time on our last show talking about presidential libraries. I want to talk to you about an exhibit that's in the FDR Library because it really applies to what we're going through today. Now, uh, government spending and deficits were a major issue in FDR's time, and uh, you know he had to make decisions about spending when he took office in 1933. The unemployment rate was 24.9 percent, and uh, government spending was uh, at 4.6 billion. And they, they have an exhibit in that library that is a graph that shows as government spending increased on these New Deal projects, the unemployment rate declined precipitously. And it's even in, uh, in 1937, there was a point where uh, FDR had cut New Deal spending. And so you saw a decline in that spending. And with that decline, you saw another increase in the un- unemployment rate. But as soon as they got back to spending and, and spending on recovery efforts and getting uh, America back in shape, that unemployment rate continued to dip. So there's certainly power in, in that graphic, in that economic philosophy that by driving Uh, money into the economy and driving the economy, you can really uh, turn things around. And I think, uh, you know, I believe firmly that uh, we need to engage in this uh, package to get America back on track and, and to deal with all of the issues that you so eloquently raised. But I fear we can't get there without two senators. So we need to do what we can do to get those two senators. My fear is that if we do nothing, you're going to see a dramatic shift in the makeup of the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate in 2022, and all bets are off the table should that shift uh, take place. That's my two cents.
2: Well, I'm well, also- but I, but I think what we're missing here, and I agree with you, Jeff, that we're down to two senators. But this is not a matter of the value of the. Uh, of the programs that are being put in the $3.5 trillion bill. It's the value of those two senators. And they're not really looking at what the needs of the people are. They're looking at their own personal self-interest. Now, I admit that in a representative form of government, that is absolutely, totally their right. They get elected. And the only way you can cure that is at the next election cycle when they're up for reelection and you say you know what i don't particularly care for your philosophy so i'll vote you out and hopefully put someone in who in the next 6 years will look more after my interest than your own personal self interest or your own personal self grandizement but here's what we are missing other countries in the world have early childhood support to their families and they have for decades we're way behind on that other countries have support for their elderly in terms of health care and drugs and eye care and dental care. And we don't. And we're way behind on that. Other countries are putting money into helping to at least address the climate change because we need rapid change, monumental change in terms of helping our uh, save our climate. We're not. And so these two senators, yes, they're holding up the whole works. At the end of the day, we are violating uh, as a person who negotiated contracts for over 40 years of my life, we are violating one of the basic tenets of negotiations. And this is not about compromise. And I think we overuse that word when we're talking about a person's personal philosophy. This is not a matter of negotiations because If you've got all of the pieces of the bill or the contract in this particular instance laid out, and you've got all of the possible funding for those pieces all laid out, what's the compromise? And I think many of the folks have already said it. All right, cinema, Okay, Manchin. Just tell me what you want to cut. Because that's what you're talking about. You're not talking about um, really, well, if we cut back here, we save. No, you're talking about cutting out programs because there's some in there that you don't like. So help me understand this. Why is it that the Democrats are fighting one another over something that really, uh, and I agree with Biden, I'm scratching my head over this. What's wrong with the opportunity to say yes when everyone's saying, okay, and you've got yes right in front of you and you've got an agreement, but yet we've got two people who really are saying, well, you know what? No, I'm going to blow it up. And that's what they're doing. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to let those two people go and do what they want to do because of what you just said, Jeff. It's politics. It has nothing to do with what's good for the American people. It's the politics of it because we're going to have to, okay, because in this case, something is better than nothing in a political environment. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about what's good for the country. So that's the thing that I think we as citizens need to hold those politicians accountable for yeah okay you guys compromise and you do it and guess what we have to have long memories as citizens to not allow these politicians to again run their own personal self-interest objecting to the personal interest of the country as a whole
1: i would add also uh, just to to reflect back briefly on natalia's point there's that old saw we heard as kids a stitch in time saves nine so the idea of Supporting this bill in whole sort of guarantees you know, the greater returns. And yes, we may be exposed to greater costs on climate change later and other aspects. And uh, to your point, Dr. Mike, yes, there is a political self interest here. Now, I happen to have some expertise in this area because, along with getting some people elected, which was my job as a media person, I also had what were issue productions, issue campaigns. And what I would do and what I would recommend to AOC, Bernie et al, is you need to talk over the heads and over the shoulders of Manchin and cinema to their constituents. You need to get their constituents to understand clearly why the bill is beneficial. Now, people may support it even in their own districts and states, but at the end of the day, If you build more support for a yes vote within their state, if you protect them proactively, politically, so that way they know they have air cover from Washington on supporting this bill in whole, then you can convert the no to a yes or at the least get to a yes with a higher number than what they're proposing. But but
2: But the frustrating part of that, Pete, is that's going on. Look at, look at the people who are following cinema around. Those are not, uh, you know, some, you know, a wild bunch of scattered folks. Many of those are home constituents. The same is happening in, in West Virginia. You all see the ads going on in West Virginia. I happen to have visited, uh, I'm, I'm running through Tennessee and I'm going through a, a little piece of West Virginia and I've got the radio on and I'm listening to these ads. It's happening. But these two individuals, and here is one of the problems with our system. Yeah, uh, please, I don't have any idea how to fix it. But we're a representative form of government. We don't have direct control over cinema or mansion. We have to depend upon their willingness to listen to both sides and do what's in the best interest of their state or of the country. But I must admit that my observation is that that's not what 's happening here, I could be wrong. Maybe Joe thinks or Cinema thinks that they are doing what 's in the best interest of the Arizona people, but that 's not the feedback they 're getting from their folks, at least from what i 'm seeing and what i 'm reading and Again, I could be wrong i 'm not a resident of West Virginia or of Arizona, but my observations are that those uh, that those particular efforts are going on right now. Well, I would think
1: that the pollsters are obviously having some sway here and where they're getting their information about how their constituents feel about things may not be in sync with you know, other national polls and other data. And I don't know, because obviously it's, you know like economics, a very inexact science sometimes. Then there may be an emotional issue. There may just be something that they are devoutly opposed to. And so, as you point out, we need to know what that is. What are the sticking points for them? with some specificity. So those things can be addressed. Let's look at the uh, political piece for for a moment. And and, it
3: certainly is a a political question that is out there. But let's explore that political question. You know, I'm not sure I'm convinced that Joe Manchin is doing this totally in his self-interest. He represents a state that went overwhelmingly for uh, Donald Trump in the last election, and he's at great risk uh, for losing in his next election. Should he support the full 3.5 trillion? And the question that I pose is: It worth putting him at risk? Because if he loses, that means you get another Republican senator. And it becomes fifty one forty nine. What have you gained by putting him at risk? And uh, that's not good for the country to shift the balance like that. So I'm not I'm not uh, willing to go and say he's doing this solely to protect himself. I look at um, look at it as him preserving uh, the institution and uh the country as a whole uh you know, you know i'm not to uh, stand here as a joe manchin fan but uh, i'm saying you know he's he's got real things to think about and it's more than just about him well i well
2: at the end of the, oh i'm sorry not the go ahead
0: no i was just gonna say i wonder if michael you know you're asking like what are the issues like some part of me feels like politics has become so divisive and so about individual personalities that maybe it's not about issues. It's about who is behind this. And, you know, it's AOC is a divisive figure. And, you know, maybe if, if in Trump land, anything that AOC says, you have to go again. So, and it's not about getting down to the, you know, the actual topic, the issue, the constituents might still feel very strongly that yes, investing in our children and our families and our future we all can agree on that and somehow it is because we have become so polarized that it becomes about individuals and you know who is kind of at the forefront and and so i don't know i'm i'm i wonder if the politics jeff are more than About the topic, and more about the than just about how much money is it going to cost or where it's going to come from, but is who has proposed it and who's going to benefit from the fame that comes with it. I don't know. I mean, I'm, it's it's really unpleasant to think, and that's where I think Michael is right in the sense of it's not really about the issues anymore. It's becoming uh, convoluted and mixed up in in these broader conversations. But I agree with you, Jeff. Of course, we don't want to lose, uh, you know, a seat, but yeah.
2: But at the same time, let me use a recent example to actually make your point, Jeff, and let's let our listeners then decide. There are times when you look at your political career and you say to yourself, are these issues and values and policies more important than me winning re-election? And there comes a time when I believe every politician has to face that. This particular bill, the $3.5 billion bill, is so monumental that I think some of the members of Congress have got to look at, is this that moment when I have to look at my political career versus what is in the best interest of the country? The last time the Democrats did this, right after they made the decision, we lost a big time, and it was Obamacare. And there were many politicians who went ahead and said, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'll go ahead and take it, albeit I will possibly lose my seat over this. And they did. I, as a citizen, have the utmost respect when that moment comes that you recognize it. And that's why I say we will ultimately end up with. Cinema and Mansion looking at their own personal self interest in terms of their own longevity. But at the same time, are they not losing the moment here in time when we can make some huge monumental changes for the people of this country?
1: That's yeah, a tough call. Uh, <clears throat> that and Jeff's point about are they considering the longevity of the party if they should lose? And so, It's complex. I'm also going to say that, you know, being a fan of the Sunday morning pressers, whenever Joe Manchin is on, he does not sound like an unreasonable guy. He is articulate. He is, in some respects, uh, expresses himself in very thoughtful ways. So we're not dealing with a guy who hasn't really worked the issue in his own head. There's a lot of complexity going on there that, quite frankly, you know, may even be above my pay grade. But, you know, when he speaks, I listen very carefully. Now, I tend to lean
2: towards supporting the entirety of the bill, uh, but you have to listen to all sides. Yeah, I'd agree. And let me move into a little more in terms of specifics of the bill, because here's an area that we've already been alerted to in higher ed uh, with regard to a cut that they're already saying this is going to happen. Right now in the bill, there's 45 billion, or there was, <laughs> it's been changed. Um, there was $45 billion designated for the HBCUs in the country. That's the, the historically black, black colleges and universities. $45 billion. That $45 billion has been cut now to $2 billion. And that $2 billion is now being looked at as possibly a competitive grant. So that the HBCUs, rather than to get money for their own infrastructure, for their own programs, to help them to sustain uh, their mission, which is over 150 years now, that that money is now out of the $3.5 trillion. So there's $43 billion that's already now taken off the table. In just that one program alone, my understanding is that Cinema wants to cut, which is hard for me to understand since she was part of the Green Party at one point, wants to cut the climate change money. So as we listen to some of the what we call more conservative or even they'll label themselves moderate politicians with regard to what's going to be cut. Uh, we have to brace ourselves for some of the things that they want cut. And as Jeff said, at the end of the day, we're going to have to live with then if we're putting the sustaining of the Democratic Party more than the issue of getting the $3.5 trillion intact. And don't forget, Bernie and ALC and, uh, and many of the other progressives have said that the $3.5 trillion was already a compromise because they wanted something close to $10 trillion. Uh, so, you know, I can we talk about the specifics in terms of what are some of the programs that are going to be lost? And I know that uh, there's some pieces in there regarding healthcare care uh, that you may know a little more about, Nantalia, uh, that's on the chopping block.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't actually know the specifics of what's on the chopping block, but I do think that you're right. What often falls onto the chopping blocks are issues um, that, you know, are don't have a very strong kind of constituent, you know, lobby sort of behind them, but often they are fundamentally important issues. Um, and so what is at stake isn't just votes, it is the actual programs. And 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 I think we need to get away from that. But you know, to Jeff's point about losing kind of a seat or the party. I do wonder about the next generation. I do wonder about our youth. If we really were to chop the climate um, kind of monies, where there's so much momentum, so much demand, like what is going to happen to that generation of sixteen, seventeen, eight-year-old, eighteen-year-olds who are entering into politics? Like, I do think that there's more at stake. It's not just the one seat. It is kind of an entire generation being feeling that we have failed them again, and you know, being either completely you know, disenfranchised feeling that they don't need to vote. They don't want to be part of any party or, you know, the democratic party falling apart. So I I don't, I don't know the calculus, you know, it's hard sitting back. If you are an older white man saying, you know, it's one seat, this is what we're fighting over versus if you're a 20 year old who is saying, no, what we're fighting over is our future and the future of our generation and politics as a whole. So I don't know. I'm pretty. I find myself, you know, as, as sort of the youngest person in this group and sort of the, the only woman feeling that a lot of these issues that are on the chopping board, you know, childcare, women's issues. I mean, I even heard that the Hyde Amendment might be some people are trying to sneak that in. I mean, there are so many fundamental issues that matter to, to you know, my generation and my children's generation that I think are on the chopping board. And um, I feel really, you know, pretty, pretty upset that this is where we are right now. Um, and I do want to be a pragmatist, but I also don't want to give up on some of these fundamental um, issues that that matter. And they matter for the future of our children and our families.
1: I, I also want to talk here about just how the bill is being framed and sold. And uh, This is a, a, you know, some would say a minor point, but I think it's more significant uh, in my mind because, you know, we've heard the phrase before, words matter the largest number in the whole thing, 1.8 trillion, literally, you know, 50 plus percent of the bill is for the finance committee. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? It, all you see is a caption is, oh yeah, finance committee needs a little more than half of this. Well, this part of the bill is for investing in working families, the elderly, the environment it includes the tax cut for making less than 400 K. Uh, lowering the price of prescription drugs, ensuring the wealthy, large corporations pay their fair share. Now, when you get the explainer, you go, "Oh, okay, yeah, I like that." But just saying 1.8 trillion for the finance committee—well, that doesn't fly all that clearly in people's minds in terms of a masthead. The next item down on the bill is a little more expository: 726 billion for health, labor, education, and pensions you know, that number sounds a little more like it might have actually been part of the other one. But nonetheless, it's universal pre-K, child care for working families, tuition-free community college, and so on. And some support for HBCUs and expansion of the Pell Grants. So those two big, big numbers, uh, I think, suffer from a couple of things. Uh, They suffer from clarity in the mastheads and what they're about, their mission statements. Need to be obviated in some way and and made more clear uh, in the telling of the tale. Then the next item down is 332 billion for the banking committee. Well, right away people have a reaction to banks and go, well, we all hate banks. I like my bank, but I hate banks in general. Uh, and so, saying it's for the banking committee, well, how are we benefiting banks? We're not. What it includes: investments in public housing, housing trust fund, housing affordability and equity. Uh, and for community land trusts, those are things we like. And so, one of the issues that the overarching issue with this bill is that there is in the reading of the bill a wonkiness, uh, an obscurity, uh, an overlayer that doesn't help selling the bill to people who are more conservative. If you will, the media packaging of the package is less than
2: optimal. That's my IMHO. I totally agree. And you know what? It's one of the banes of Washington and our politicians. Uh, You know, you look at a poll and 70% 70 of the people in the United States are behind the poll. Uh, And as a researcher, I always ask myself, well, what were the questions? 70% of the people based upon what kind of sample? uh, How many did they get from West Virginia? How many people were there from from Arizona? Did they look at each state separately? I mean, there's all kinds of questions. And then suddenly I start to sound uh, rather wonky. I start to sound rather intellectual. I start to turn off all of those people who really don't give a darn about how research is done. Just tell me how I'm personally going to benefit. And then therein lies the translation problem, Pete, that we run into. This particular bill. Uh, And I happen to be one of those crazy people who goes to the actual bill itself and then will try to fight my way through it. I have not read through the entire bill. It's over, I think, 1,500 pages long. And again, uh, there was a thought that the 1,500 pages was just a draft. (laughs) If if you want to really follow the kind of Washington craziness. Uh, But you're right. When you it's start, not, it's throw... not the feel good beach read of the summer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it didn't even have an opening like War and Peace, you know. I mean, you know. <laughs> it was the best of bills, it was the worst it's of the bills. worst of bills. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a dark and stormy, <laughs> yeah. All
2: right, right, this is a far, far better bill that I put together now than I have ever put together. Uh, okay, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, we could go down all of those trips and. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, my sister just wants to know, hey, is this going to help me with, you know, with my public assistance and housing? Is this going to help me with my, uh, you know, with my weekly uh, food bill? You know, and some of my nieces and nephews want to know, you know, will this help me with my child care? You know, will I be able to afford it? Will I be able to rather than have to piece together Uh, care for my child so that I can work a part-time job? Well, I have some decent kind of uh, child care so that I can go work full-time or go to college? So the real liveliness and the real kind of, hey, this is what this bill is going to do for you, uh, either ends up in some kind of promotional commercial, and I'm sure all of us have seen those, or it ends up in some kind of interpersonal attack. Oh, here's what the Republicans are trying to do to you. And or here's what the Democrats are trying to do to you. And then it's, you know, and then the words start to come. But again, how do we approach the families, the elderly and say, you know, we're trying to help and here's how we're trying to do it uh, without it being quote unquote, a promise, but Hey, we're working on it.
1: I I would agree with that. I'd I'd, I'd also um, sort of extend what you were saying in that, you know, the 70% of the people may be for the bill. And some of that is just going to be sort of aimless favoritism. That is, yeah, they'll, they'll say yeah to anything without even really understanding. The thing I would encourage people to do is there are many websites available, many real websites that explain the bill thoroughly, that illuminate what is in the bill, and, and that people really ought to investigate so that way they are perhaps more comfortable with supporting the bill and supporting the senators and the representatives who have to make that bill happen. Uh, But quite frankly, as always, that takes work. But I encourage people to do the work. What do you think, Dr. Natalia? Should they do the work?
0: Yes, people should do the work. But also, um, we need to recognize that people might not have time right now to do the work. We are in the midst still of a pandemic families are still taking care of their sick and so part of me wants to simplify things for everyone yes you know if you have the time do the work do your research but i agree with michael we need to just be telling people this is going to help you and it's going to help you right now and Um, you know, it's, it's, it's work to be involved in politics. I think it's well worth work, but it's not something that we can take for granted when people are working two or three jobs or having kids at home or the elderly that they're taking care of because of COVID. And I don't know, Pete, just taking it back to these are not normal times. People are struggling every single day. And every minute we delay on making a decision, um, or postpone, it actually feels, um, like we are kind of turning a blind eye to that real immediate need that people have today. So yes, I, I want to end with a note of optimism. There's a lot of information out there and I hope that we will come to a conclusion because people need that help um, today or actually yesterday.
1: I would also note, by the way, uh, years ago uh, when Dale, when Dan Quayle was a Senator, he was an avid golfer. And the quip about Dan Quayle was that he was Florida's third Senator because he was always there golfing. Now, we all, quite frankly, have the right to talk to any senator, not just our own. So I would suggest to our audience that, you know, it's not a bad thing to contact Cinema to contact Manchin, even if you're in Massachusetts and say, hey, I want to have a greater good discussion. So there's an opportunity there to find their websites and reach out and to actually comment and say that you're in support of the bill. So that way they get a view even beyond their own states and maybe consider the larger implications. Also with respect to research, consider that everything I've talked about, finding their websites and finding just one or two good explainer websites. I'm talking about find 30 minutes to give the internet your time, the best of the internet, not social media, not opines, not disinformation, but real websites from organized news sources that explain exactly what's going on. If you got 30 minutes to do that and to respond to our own senators and other senators that you'd like to influence, that is time well spent. And I'm not asking for a lot of it. But it's a way that you can participate beyond your vote.
2: Well, let me add this, too, because it's the Internet has direct access to the bill. You can go to the Senate, and there are uh, summaries that the Senate puts together of its bills. And, you know, it's not a bad thing, Pete, for people to go to the primary source, see what's available to me and try to struggle through it. That's what the Internet can do for you is take you right to the words of what it is that the senators and the House members and don't forget the three point five trillion is actually coming out of the House. So the bill itself uh, and again, right now, all we have is a sort of an outline uh, but that outline is fairly detailed. <laughs> okay, right. And also talk to one another about it. Uh, if you hear something here, even on this program that's intriguing, send us a note about it. Uh, tell your friends and neighbors. Yeah, tell your friends and neighbors. <laughs> hey, you know, and if there's some other pieces of research, uh, you, you know, I'm sure the four of us will be happy to uh, clarify some of our points. For example, okay. the issue of of whether or not the bill is funded or not. I had a friend of mine when I showed her that, the, the, you know, it says that the bill is uh, what's the term they use in the uh, 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 in the Congress when a bill is funded. They don't say it's funded. They say the bill is uh, the bill is offset with these particular pieces. And she didn't understand that offset meant funded. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so you know, so again, people, if you're listening to us, uh, you know, we're not trying to be hyperbolic. We're not trying to again be wonky. We're just trying to say, hey, sometimes don't listen to what others are saying. Do the research yourself. Take the time. Exactly, you've made a great point too. And again, you know, I've been tracking this and
1: other issues. Obviously, you know, being a big fan of the Sunday pressers. And by the way, I watch more than one of them. I mean, I really. Pay attention, which is how I get to hear guys like Joe Manchin speaking their mind in an articulate manner, and so forth, and the Q and A, and some of those points are still obscured, like the bills are fully funded slash offset, and so, you know, I need to have that brought to top of mind in a world of competing things for our attention. So, all that said, I would recommend that this is an opportunity for people to take the internet and to take control. Make the internet something that helps us move toward a more perfect union. And rather than simply allowing yourself to be victims of disinformation, use it for the public good, for your own good, and find a way forward so that way you really understand the bill. I'm Peter J. and with me today, Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and as always, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, with great insights on what is a very complex topic, which we are going to continue in a future episode. So I do hope that you stick with us as we delve into all of this, and Congress delves into all of this to get to an outcome somewhere within the next few weeks. That said, as Dr. Michael Walker-Jones said, you've got an opinion, let us know at info at franklin.tv. That's INFO at franklin.tv as we all move toward a more perfect union. I'm Peter J. This is Franklin Public Radio.